This is the More Than Work podcast, where we talk all about how to gain more satisfaction in your job. It's possible to enjoy your life and your work, because business is personal. And now, today's story. Imagine having the job that you've always wanted and being wildly successful at it. Imagine you're making great money and you can afford to buy the things you've always wanted to have. By all accounts, you've made it, except that something is wrong. You lose your passion for the work and you even feel that the work is starting to erode your health. Where do you go next? Well, if you are our special guest today, you eventually start a chocolate company that sources directly to cocoa farmers halfway across the world. Then you become a keynote speaker and author, helping people find their own vocational calling. Askenosi Chocolate has been named by Forbes as one of the top 25 small businesses in America. They've been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, MSNBC. I can see Sean blushing already, just talking through all of these these references. Uh, New York Times, ever heard of it? Wall Street Journal ever heard of it, right, Bethany? The chocolate itself has won three good food awards, which is like the Oscars for food and multiple other worldwide awards. And its owner has been named one of 15 people who are changing the world by O, which is the Oprah Winfrey magazine, which is amazing. But that's not why our guest is with us today. That's an impressive resume. That's that's not why he's here today. Our guest is here because since I've known Sean and watched him in his company, he is truly somebody that puts people at the center of his organization and also the people that his business touches. So I'm proud to introduce as our special guest for our podcast today, my friend and founder of CEO of Askenosi Chocolate and author of the book, Meaningful Work, A Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling and Feed Your Soul, Sean Askenosi. Sean, welcome. Thank you. Wow. Thank you, Don. Isn't that something? Sure. I almost wrote a song for you just to put it at the beginning, just so you really felt like it was special, but I didn't want to overwhelm you. What would it be based on? I mean, what genre or? I mean, clearly I was thinking rap. Uh, I was thinking Really? You were? Okay, you're thinking like, jazz? thinking jazz. You just struck me as a jazz guy, you know? That's, Are you a jazz guy? Oh, that's, a, I, you know what? Um, I'm one of those people, I like jazz. I mean, I would aspire to know more about jazz, you know? <laughs> so Miles Davis and all those people, um, I do like it. That's interesting though, that you would pick rap. Do you mean like old school, like, like from the seventies or do you mean like new rap? Like the Sugarland stuff? I'm probably more of the, uh, like, I like, have you ever been game. over for, have you ever been over to a friend's house to eat and the chicken just tastes like wood? <laughs> try to play it off. Like you think you can uh, anyway, never mind. He's uh, right. You didn't, you know what? We didn't plan for Sean to drop some beats for us, but, uh, we can arrange hip, hip, hip mm-hmm. to the hop, to the hip, hip, You don't hip. stop rocking till the band, band boogie, so they up, jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie to be. I knew I could get him going on. I knew I could get him. That's it. That's it. It is more than work. That's it. That's awesome. Awesome. Well, Sean, I wanted to give our listeners a little context with your story to start off with. I know you tell this story a lot, you know, and it's the same old chestnut of the defense attorney who starts a chocolate factory. And you outlined it in your book, which by the way, for those of you out there, uh, we don't often recommend books, but this is definitely one I recommend. Whether you own a company or you're an employer a company, if you're just looking for something more from your job, uh, Meaningful Work is an excellent book. Uh, and it's one that uh, I've, I've got a couple of copies and I keep one in the office and we share it with people. And then I've also got one at home uh, that you were gracious enough to even sign for me. 
on it. But uh, tell us a little bit about your story. How did you get to from a defense attorney to a chocolatier? The uh, the path was long and winding. And, um, you know, I always wanted to be a lawyer. As you said in the introduction, my dad was a lawyer and um, my hero. And he died when I was young. He died when I was 14. And <clears throat> I went I went to the courthouse with him when I was young here in Springfield and and would watch him try cases and watched his community service. And I wanted to be like him. And as is often the case, when a person is young and a parent dies, they want to be like them even more. And that's what it was for me. And so it was just really never a question that I wouldn't go to law school and be a lawyer until I actually got my grades back um, in undergrad. Those were not telling the story that I would be a lawyer. Then I took the LSAT, which is the standardized test to get into law school. That was also not telling me that I was going to be a lawyer. Um, and I had quite a time, you know, I majored in political science and that's what people do before they go to law school. And I just, I did all the things that I thought would get me into law school without grades and LSAT. I, I just didn't think it through. So for example, I was very, very active in high school in politics. I was a page in Congress, boy state governor, um, worked for Jack Danforth as an intern. All these guys wrote recommendation letters for me. And um, I thought, well, you know, it's no problem. I mean, Gene Taylor and Kit Bond and those guys are writing me letters. What else? Who cares if I have a two point whatever GPA? <clears throat> well, every law school I applied to cared. Um, <laughs> and I applied to 11 law schools. That's a lot of yeah. back then you had to pay. I don't know if you have to do that now, but I had to pay every one of those schools to apply. And none of them accepted me. And um, I was really dejected at that point. And um, I'd waited until the very last school in August, you know, before classes started, Oklahoma City University was the last one to reject me. And I went into the commercial real estate business in Dallas, Fort Worth. Um, it was just like an opportunity that I had. It was commission only work. And it's where I met my wife in, in Fort Worth. And she encouraged me to retake the LSAT. I did. I did a little bit better, not a lot better. I applied to Mizzou, was the last person accepted in the class right before class started, worked really, really hard every single day of law school. I loved it. I loved everything about it. Um, it was kind of weird. I mean, I was one of the only people I knew that I, I just, I didn't skip class. I, I never, never gave up until the very last day of my third year. And uh, I proved the... Um, folks wrong that count GPA and standardized tests as an indicator of how you'll do in law school. And I did really well in law school for my um, capabilities. I think I, I graduated in the top 20% of the class and didn't do anything like I did in undergrad. Got a good job, got a great job working for a large firm in Texas and um, then moved back to Springfield to practice criminal law. And I did that for almost 20 years. And um, as you said in the introduction, I loved it. And I felt like I was in the right place at the right time. It didn't feel like work. And all of that. You were wildly that, successful at it. You were wildly well, I didn't. I did not lose a criminal jury trial in all those years. Yeah. Uh, not one. Remarkable. And, and, but that, that 
takes its toll eventually, especially working in criminal law. And I worked in serious criminal cases and um, it can wear on you. And then if you reach a point where you don't love it, it begins to have an exponential um, deteriorating effect on your mind and body and soul. And that's what happened. And I reached a point where I didn't love it anymore. And I, I was lost because I didn't have any other things to do. I, I, I didn't know anything else. And that was a real struggle. That was a, that was a, a period of about five years, still practicing law, desperately searching for the next thing. It ended up being chocolate. Yeah. So I picked chocolate. That, that five-year period through there, and you talk about a little bit in your book, uh, it, it's, it's funny whenever you think about a transition for a career, a lot of times we think it's going to be like the moment, like the aha epiphany that hits you and something, but you, you really describe it as like multiple different moments that kind of hit that helped you in your journey. Can you describe that a little bit in terms of what, what helped you to make that transition? Yes. And um, thank you for bringing this up because I think this is really important. And especially for some of your listeners who have, have, have made it through 2020 and are thinking to themselves, Oh boy, you know, I made it through. And is this really what I want for my life where I am right now? There's a lot of appraisal happening in the, in the world right now. And um, when really hard charging type a driven people find themselves in the spot of, I don't think I can do this anymore. Um, we often, well, here's, here's what our default setting is. Our default setting is, well, uh, this is another problem to solve. The way we have solved this problem or I mean, problems like this in the past is by charging at it, researching it, talking to people about it, getting feedback, you know, making lists, and we'll solve the problem. We will, we will uncover enough stones to find the solution. There is a solution. Um, this is a winnable problem. And <laughs> unfortunately, it often, most often doesn't work that way. And as you said, especially those of us who are used to seeing this, what appears to be an insurmountable problem and just saying, well, I'm, I'm going to do what I've always done. I'm going to roll up my sleeves. I'm going to work as hard as it takes. I'm going to talk to whoever I need to talk to. Do I need to work 80 hours a week to solve this problem? Fine. I'll work 80 hours a week. Not, no, no problem. Can do. Well, then when you do that, you, you reach a point and you say, this, this problem is not getting solved. So therefore what I'm going to do next is I'm going to say, well, I've done all the work. So the answer is going to just appear to me. There will be an audible voice. The, the voice of the divine will be in English and it will tell me really loudly what I need to do. Or there will be a sign, you know, there will be a cloud in the sky that spells out the name of the company I should start or <laughs> what franchise I should buy. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, we, we, those of us who think that way get to that point and we don't hear the voice and we don't see the sign and we're really then even further um, despondent 
over this apparent inability of ours, not only to find the next thing, we don't know what it is, but we don't know how to find it. That's where I was. So I didn't, I didn't know. And all of the Googling, all of the researching, all of the talking wasn't unveiling for me one thing. And I often, I talk about this in the book and I talk about this a lot and I'm not, obviously I'm not the person who made this up, but I I tell people, you know, one of the first layers of this onion is just sit down and think or write out, journal about it. What are my skills? What are my talents? What am I good at? What can I get good at reasonably? Not rap, you know, Uh, what, 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 what am I going to, what am I going to do? And then begin to say, okay, what does the world need? And hey, let's, while we're doing this, let's just say, what do we mean by world? It doesn't have to be the world world, doesn't have to be the planet. It could be, what does my state need? Or what, what does my community need? What does Springfield need? What does my neighborhood need? Or my company? That's my world. What does my company need? Um, and I think that is something that we have to meditate on. We have to journal about. We can write it out in a list. And okay, where are those things kind of overlapping? What the world needs, what I'm good at. Am I good at accounting? Am I a good lawyer? Can I pick up a skill that I think is reasonable? Am I good in business? Do I have a sort of sixth sense for what would, what the world needs um, in the way of a product or a service? Where do those, where do those, where does that Venn diagram overlap between what the world needs and what my skill set is? That's actually, and for me, that wasn't that hard. Um, And, you know, I was able to sort of narrow down, you know, in this really huge subset of things. Okay, well, it's going to be in this universe, you know, of possibilities. But that's not, that doesn't present a real paycheck or a real business, or you're not going to, it doesn't help you go to the secretary of state's website and start your LLC. I mean, it's just this big glob of knowledge that maybe you have now that you didn't have before. So for me, the real problem, the thing that took five years, wasn't those two things that I just talked about. It was, well, what am I passionate about? I am a very passionate guy. I've always been that way. I always will be that way. I'm, I'm sure I've mellowed a little bit. I will probably die a very passionate person whenever that is. And um, it's just who I am. I get excited about stuff. And I could not, I wasn't getting excited about any of the stuff. Mm. Nothing was tripping my trigger. I couldn't find it. I thought, man, I loved law for so long. I could go into the office on Saturdays and it wasn't work. I, you know, I liked doing research on gunshot residue or, you know, fingerprints or fiber evidence or whatever it was. I was DNA, whatever. And, or just answering the phone in the office, you know, and just helping people. But I could not figure it out. And this was the thing this and i know that a lot of your listeners will will share this experience or relate to this idea that we need to be excited about something and if we don't do the work to figure out what that is you can go do this venn diagram on the other two subsets and you you're going to find a job 
You might even find what you think is your next career, but will it, but will it attract you, you know, like a magnet? I mean, is it going to have a gravitational pull? Um, Probably not. Maybe for a little while, because it was the shiny object that you were attracted to and leapt on. But this for me, finding my passion was the spiral down for me to the point of, you know, ultimately having chest pains and thought I was having a heart attack or my doctor thought I might be. And it ended up just being panic, you know, a panic attack ended up, he prescribed me a psychologist. Um, and she was great, but, um, it only peeled back a couple of layers of the onion. It didn't really get to the depth of it. I ended up taking Lexapro, which is an antidepressant that helped, but I just, you know, continued to struggle, 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 struggle. It's almost like, and I like how you say, you know, like the type A, it's the, the, the natural tendency is just to go after it, to go so good, go after it. As you tell that story, you know, what, what kind of strikes me a little bit is that when we're so much in the go, go, go mode, we create so much noise that maybe that drowns out the passion and maybe you don't see the yeah. passion that's out there. And so you almost have to do, yes. you have to do the opposite of what you think you should do. And it's counterintuitive. Yes. And you talk about this. And actually, if, if anybody's listening, if anybody's listening, if anyone else out there who's thinking <laughs> about, you know, if this is really speaking to you, I highly recommend, again, getting the book because Sean walks through a whole process that you walk through. But the step one is, is so important. And it's what you're talking about here is you have to do the opposite of what you might think you need to do is instead of searching for it so hard, and putting so much noise in your head, it's like you almost have to do the opposite of that of like, stop looking, uh, kind of kind of close your mind a little bit, not close your mind, but just close the noise off in your head. So yes. that you can hear other things that are coming up. Is that a, is that a good analogy of that? Yes, it is. Thank you. It's it, it, it all it boils down to the signal to noise ratio. Just like you said, and if you are not in a place <clears throat> to receive the signal, I don't care how hard you push. In fact, as you said, counterintuitively, the harder you push, the harder the signal is to receive because it's noise, noise, noise. And by the way, we're fooled by it because we make the list of how great we are at all these things and what the world needs. And we're thinking, hey, I am on a roll. I am making this. I'm, hey, I'm good at some stuff. And that's, that is all a very important exercise. But for in the, in the, for, for the most part, it's not the, it's not the, the way and the path where most people trip and fall down and really struggle and get depressed and become anxious. Uh, and it's, it's this part of, and then, and, then we, and then we try harder and the harder we try, the further away it seems. I talk about this a lot. It's like trying to grab fog. You mm-hmm. cannot do it. And, and then you begin to really, the harder you're looking for it, you, you, you lose energy, you think, and, 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 and this is where many people give up. But um, as you say, the, the, you, you need to kind of do the counterintuitive thing, step back. And what I suggest is that people develop a practice or practices, which will cultivate this space, Mm -hmm. to receive the signal 
And by that, I don't mean to receive the signal of an audible voice in English or to be able to receive the signal of what the clouds are saying in the sky. However, I'm not discounting that either. Uh, in other words, there are people who have heard or who have seen, you mm -hmm. know, messages, you know, mm -hmm. this is what I need to do. And I'm not discounting that. And there are people who, who have received that. And, but what I'm saying is it's more for me, it was more disjointed than that. In other words, it was kind of a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And then I have a chocolate factory, but I think it's important to, to, to say, okay, well, for me, what was the practice or practices that I developed to create that space? The first thing I would say is I did not do that intentionally. So I didn't say, Oh, I need to, you know, I'm really having trouble here. I think what I'll do is just step back from this. I was just so tired from it. I, I, I thought, well, I guess I'll just do this. And the idea came to me when I was at Assumption Abbey, which is a monastery about an hour and a half South of Springfield. Um, and uh, I've been going there for 21 years on retreat. Now I'm a family brother at this Abbey, but um, I was just walking the roads there um, by myself one day. And this idea came to me, Hey, um, maybe I need to volunteer at a local hospital um, and meet with people who are dying, you know, who were in the same condition my dad was in. And uh just during my kind of meditative walks and prayerful walks is when this came to me. So I went back to Springfield and uh, you know, it's kind of funny because you don't just knock on the door of one of the hospitals and say, Hey, I'd like to be a volunteer and meet with dying people. Could you let me do, I mean, I had no experience as a chaplain. I had no, <laughs> um, but um, oddly enough, my fifth and sixth grade teacher uh, at Hickory Hills was Paul Elmore who had, he left teaching shortly after I had him. And when I decided to knock on the doors of hospitals to ask if I could volunteer, he happened to be the um, VP of HR for Mercy, the whole thing. Good, good so, person to know, yeah. Yes. So I knocked on his door um, and he arranged for me to be a volunteer at Mercy uh, in the palliative care department, which is, which is, uh, um, essentially like hospice in the hospital. And um, so I received some training and on Fridays when I was in town, I would visit with patients who were in some stage of dying. They were in the oncology unit or, or cardio unit or some in, in some way they were in some kind of terminal diagnosis being treated in the hospital. And my job was just basically to go talk to people just as a volunteer, you know, just, I, I didn't, um, you know, do surgery or anything. I mean, I just knocked on the door and often they were alone, you know, so they had asked for a volunteer to come in and visit. Sometimes there were family members there, but um, so I would just introduce myself and visit with them and talk about whatever, you know, it could be pie recipes or fishing or hunting or whatever are the old days. If they wanted to talk, many of these patients were older, not all. Um, and I always ended my visit by saying words to the effect of, um, Hey, one of the things I do is um, say a prayer for people before I leave. Would you like me to say a prayer for you? And almost all of them said yes. And 
I asked them a very important question. And I, it, I used this to this day. And I said, what would you like me to pray for? And this was the opposite of how I was treated as a 13, 14 year old before my dad died. And so they would say, you know, this opened up a whole other lane of conversation for us. They would say very intimate things to me about what they wanted the prayer to say that their family would maybe be at peace or be kind to each other after they died or that they would be healed that day or that they would die that day because they were ready. They were in pain. And I listened. I would ask them if I could touch their arm or their shoulder. And I prayed their exact words back to them. And something happened almost every time I did this. And that was, I actually thought about someone else besides myself. And I'd been spending all of this time years, well, my whole life, um, thinking about me. We all do that. Um, and I especially had an intense period of years thinking about me and what I was going to do next and why I wasn't inspired and all the rest. And for a moment in time, I thought about that person that I was touching and not me. And that moment was a moment of, as Eckhart Tolle says, the eternal now. It was forever. There was no beginning and no end to that moment. It's still going on. And so, you know, those moments gathered together, again, not by design for me, but those moments gathered together created some space that I needed so that the signal to noise ratio was lowered. And then eventually I, you know, got a hobby of grilling and then the hobby from grilling turned to baking and then baking to desserts and then desserts to chocolate. And then I wound up in the Amazon a few months after the idea to make <laughs> chocolate. Yeah. And you, you do the chocolate weird. You do this weird. You have a weird practice, which I love. Mm -hmm. um, I, I want to highlight one thing about that story though, because it's incredibly powerful, but I don't know if everybody recognizes, you know, in the book, you talk in detail, you know, you and I both share something that we both lost our dads. Um, you lost yours a lot earlier in your life, you know, but we've talked about that and both of our dads passing away led to our current career. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, you know, we, we shared that um, in Puerto Vallarta, which is a nice place to share that, by the way, Indeed. Just, yes. we, were, we, we were both at a conference there. Um, mm -hmm. But just to recognize going into that hospital for the first time had to be like going like it's imagine getting mauled by a lion and then going back to the circus to go visit the lion. I yes, mean, please. Thank you for using the lion analogy. I, I literally use that. It's like putting your head in the mouth of a lion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's the it's the last thing you probably thought that yeah. you should want to do. And by yeah. and just side note, just reading reading your story, I was so angry at the people around you in yeah. that those moments reading that. I was I was yelling at the book, going, yeah. "That's oh, that is not." Yeah. That's exactly the wrong things to say. Exactly the wrong direction. Yes. But well, the prayer group leaders 
uh, the prayer group leaders told me not to talk to my dad about death because they said it would be a sign of doubt and that Jesus wouldn't heal him if we did it, if we talked about it. If we talked about the fact that he might die, that would be doubt and doubt equals not healing. So we didn't. I tr- my dad would try and I pushed him away and would say, dad, you can't talk like that. You won't live, you know, so don't. And so that moment that was taken from you, from your dad, you didn't when you went and did that moment with lots of other people. Yeah. I, I, I'm not trying to drag you back through that, yeah. Sean, because I know no, that's, no. A, that's a, Oh, I appreciate well, well no, no, let, let's just call it what it is. In fact, so what I didn't say in part of the story is it not only created space, but there were a few times, not many, but a handful where I would leave the front doors of mercy walk out to my car and I felt as if I was floating a few feet above the pavement on my way to the car. And um, the word that I used to describe that is joy. And the joy was so massive leaving the hospital after those experiences that it was like, it was as if I was levitating off the ground. I'm sure I wasn't. I mean, I didn't ever look, maybe, I don't know, maybe I was, but probably not, (laughs) but, 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 um, it didn't matter if my body was not levitating because my soul was. And so I talk about this in the book and I love Khalil Gibran who says that our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. And so what you, what you said is, I love how you put that about creating the opposite of those moments, you know, with people at the hospital, you know, this moment and this moment and this moment that was the opposite of my moment. Um, And the result of that is the unmasking of my greatest sorrow, which gave me paradoxically my greatest joy to this day, the greatest joy that I've ever felt this, by the way, this is not, this is accessible to any of your listeners, any single one person who is listening to this, who has had their heart broken for whatever reason can experience the joy that is born of a broken heart in a similar way to what I've described. And by the way, it doesn't have to lead to a new job or a new career, new anything. It can just be, how awesome is it to experience this kind of joy? Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. And, and, and Sean, you have so much energy and ability to create things and truly an entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, you know, I, I did want to mention that you did, you were able to spin and it's, it's almost, I don't want to say it's a side note in your story, but it's, you, you started a whole nonprofit uh, to help the use of the world <laughs> uh, that, that's around there. You, you want to talk a little bit about that? Lost and Found Grief Center is a a place that I co-founded with Dr. Karen Scott about 21 years ago. And it was, it was in the midst of this struggle that we were described, you know, that we were talking about. And um, so what we did is we, Karen and I um, retained the people from the Dougie Center in Portland, Oregon to come to Springfield and teach us and other volunteers how a support group system could work where kids, teenagers, young people heal each other in a group setting um, 
And so we paid them to come teach us. They were the premier grief center at the time. Still, uh, they still are. And um, so from that moment, you know, we started doing groups. We started in my law office at Walnut and National, and then we bought our building. And now we're, we have our own beautiful building near Glenstone and Sunshine. And, and uh, we have served people in a 22 county area all over Southwest Missouri, all for free, thousands of kids and families who've experienced the death of a parent or sibling. And um, Karen recently retired and we just, after a national search, hired her replacement. And uh, we're super excited about that. And uh, Karen and I are both still on the board of directors and both very involved. And I'm still very involved and was a teen group facilitator for 10 years. And then when COVID happened, I had to stop doing that. And hopefully I'll get to pick it back up again. But um, yes, and we even started a group a few years ago um, called Journeys for Families who have a loved one who is in the midst of a life-threatening illness. Um, and we have piloted these programs and worked with families who are really struggling, really suffering through that kind of pain. What's neat is if you don't know your story, you would think that was the punchline to the story, but that's not where you really went. I mean, you, I, I, don't, yeah. I don't want to minimize that at all. Yeah, that's no. not really where you went. You, you did those things, which is amazing. And you created that. And that those things have helped lots and lots and lots of people. Uh, but then you you pivoted and you went towards this. You talked about, you know, the grilling, the baking, the chocolate and the direction. And I want to talk a little bit more about your company here next. And that concludes part one of our conversation with Sean Askinosi. For part two, tune in next week. And until then, seek joy because it is so much more than work. Have you been thinking about starting a podcast but aren't sure where to start? I have to tell you about Anchor. It's a free creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Not only that, but with literally one click, they distribute your podcast to platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more so you can reach more listeners. They make it so easy. It was a no-brainer for us. Try it out. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening today. The More Than Work podcast is produced by People-Centric Consulting Group, a consulting firm that believes people should be put at the center of every organization. If you have a topic you want our team of experts to address, feel free to contact us at morethanworkpodcast at peopleccg.com. You can also learn more about us by visiting our website at www.peoplecentric.com. Don't forget to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We will be back next week to give you practical advice that you can use to improve your work. In the meantime, lead well.